This is Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us on the podcast series for Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. This season, you'll hear from 11 women across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. This week, we talk with Jennifer Gutierrez-Caldwell, Director of Youth Services at Pendleton Place in Greenville. Welcome, Jennifer Gutierrez-Caldwell. How would you define your life vision and how it affects your career? So I think I'd describe my life vision as this social justice advocate that like, I literally believe I was put on this earth to be an advocate, a voice for folks that just don't have a voice. And that's pretty much how I've informed all my career choices. How can I make sure that I am still this advocate for folks that are part of marginalized communities? And um, how can I be, be a voice for those that, again, don't have a voice? What was a turning point in your life that you believe contributed to your success today? Hmm. I'd probably say it was back in high school because I will say, you know, growing up in South Central Los Angeles, I wasn't as put together as you probably see me here today. I definitely had like a rough patch there. And it was through some incredible mentors at King Drew Magnet High School of Medicine and Science in LA that, that really turned my life. I um, went to an incredible high school that had a zero tolerance policy for fighting. And it was like my freshman year, I was in ninth grade and there was sort of an altercation I was a part of. And it was because of incredible administrators and educators that saw something in me and said, okay, we're gonna work with you here. And we're able to give me an, an opportunity to stay in the school. And actually Miss Thickpin, Tapa the Thickpin, who was an incredible educator, um, at that point was uh, the French teacher. And she, um, she was my French teacher, and she says, Jennifer, you have a lot of energy that you're putting out into the earth. Why don't we kind of like steer that into my leadership class, apply for my leadership class, and, and see kind of where you go with that. Um, and I ended up applying for a leadership class. I ended up then running for uh, class president, and I felt like truly there. I know it was like so early on, but that put me on the track that I needed to be on. And I think that ever since then, you know, I've, I've had this like leadership mentality of like all these things that are possible if I just kind of, you know, work hard and stay focused. And it was really because of that incredible educator. What or who gives you inspiration? I would say my family story, my parents, my, both of my parents are immigrants. My dad is from El Salvador and my mom's from Mexico. They have worked so hard to, you know, one, come to this country, then raise five girls, five women now um, in, in this country. And, um, you know, when I'm having rough days, and then even recently became a new mom, I draw on them. My mom has a house cleaning service, and my dad's a landscaper, kind of stereotypical, but is what they do. And, you know, my mom, there were days that she had to work, you know, when she was tired, she had all these girls to take care of, and so much to do, but, you know, found the strength somewhere to kind of keep going would clean four or five houses a day. So sometimes I'm at my desk and I'm tired, I need some extra coffee. I'm like, okay, I can't complain, I gotta keep going, I gotta, I gotta do this. And, and also to make them proud, give them really a reason. Like they came here for a reason and I wanna show them that they were right in doing so. And I wanna just kinda keep making them proud. What was the reason? The reason was to give us a better life. They were not able to get you know, formal education in their countries. Um, both my parents grew up in extreme poverty in El Salvador and Mexico. And so they wanted 
wanted more than anything for their daughters to get educated and to just have a better life, better quality of life. I started cleaning houses with my mom when I was about five years old because she didn't really have money for babysitters or daycare. So I kind of started going with her. And as we were like scrubbing toilets and like doing all these things in these houses, she would tell me, Jennifer, if, in Spanish, because she doesn't speak English, if you don't want to be here scrubbing toilets with me, you need to get an education. You have to get an education. That's the way out of this life. And so she kept pushing me, pushing me. And now I, I believe that, and I want to give a better life to my daughter as well. So that guides your career today as you think about it, drawing from that early childhood. Yes, that definitely guides my, my career. I think just wanting to give a better life, live a better life, and then also be able to be a model to my, to a role model to my daughter, role model for the community, um, just to know that it's, it's possible. I think so many times we get stuck on one narrative for a specific community, right? And we've seen so many different glass ceilings be broken in the last few years, right? Right? And I want to be able to, to kind of be that story like, okay, she did it. She came from this community. She looks a certain way, defeated all odds, but she did it. She was able to do that. So if I could do that for my daughter and then other community members, like that would be it. And bringing it up to today, what is your biggest workplace challenge? So I would say my biggest workplace challenge, which I'm sure everyone probably deals with this challenge, is navigating human difference. We all have a certain lens that we view life through, and it's informed by your walk of life, by you know where you were raised, who raised you, what community, what high school you went to. I mean, so many different things that inform our lens, right? And I think so many times we're, we're so stuck in the way we're, we view life that we don't realize that there's so many lenses out there. There's so many people from different communities, different backgrounds. And so, of course, we are confronted with an issue at work. We're going to view it very differently. So I think it, it requires us to take a step back and be patient and be open to hearing a different perspective and then also be open to talking about it and then processing, okay, where is this person coming from? How are they viewing this? And maybe there truly is a different and better way of doing things. What would your advice be for young women today? Hmm. My advice for young women today would be don't let anyone tell you it's not possible. Um, I think, you know, growing up in my incredible household, which was, it was awesome, my father, he would probably admit to this, that he was a very sexist man, very machista um, from Latin America, you know, believed that a woman's place was in the kitchen. He wouldn't let me do certain things that were outside of what he considered my role to be as a woman. And, and we, we fought, we butt had so much because of the fact that I wanted to do so much. And so, but there were some really strong women in my life, my mom included, that kept pushing me and kept telling me that don't let anyone tell you that something's not possible. And, and sure enough, I mean, you just work hard enough, you can beat any obstacle in front of you, any barrier put in front of you. You see it, you can, you can accomplish it. You're a new mom. How do you navigate through work-life balance? Um, so, you know, being a new mom has, has like turned my world upside down in a really good way, but in a challenging way. I have an incredible supportive husband who has been um, truly my rock in all of this and, and support. We're, you know, we're both learning. We're both trying to grow together. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like a supportive work environment. I work in a place, you know, here at Pendleton Place, um, and have a, you know, supportive people around me that um, understand that I'm a mother and 
are able to be flexible with me. But with that said, I just have to be really creative and figure out different times to get my work done. Um, when, you know, mommy duties call, that's always gonna take priority, but then also being just kind of creative. Okay, so because I'm handling mommy duties during this time, I'm going to have to get creative and probably work in the middle of the night or, you know, after the baby goes down. How have you seen the role of women change? You know, because of the household that I grew up in, I think I've seen so much. You know, I grew up in a very, again, traditional household where, my, well, tradition in the sense that my mom kind of catered a lot to my father, right? Would wake up, figure out, you know, how, what the day is gonna look like for her daughters, you know, fix breakfast for my, my dad, same for lunch, go work, come home, and then also cater to my dad in the evenings. And so that's what I felt a woman's role was, you know, what I saw. And then, you know, growing up and, and finally, you know, getting into high school, then going to college, realizing that there's so much more, there's so much more to life. I feel like my world expanded and I'm so grateful that I was able to leave California and go to Pennsylvania and just see, you know, there's women's professors. It, it, it's so interesting because the way you're socialized, you only believe what you see, right? And so I only saw my mom in this role. It's definitely a hard worker, but at the same time, her role within the household looked a certain way. But then, you know, growing up and leaving what, you know, home and what I knew and being able to see those images of so many incredible women serving in different roles, I think expanded that role. And now I feel like it's like the possibilities are endless. You know, then you have, for a second, I used to say I was gonna be the first, you know, woman Supreme Court justice, um, Latina Supreme Court justice, and then, you know, we had Sonia Sotomayor happen, you know? And so I really believe that if you, you know, you see it, you believe it, and then you can become it. And so for me, now I think the possibilities are endless. We have recently seen the Me Too movement. How has that affected gender issues? I am so thankful for the Me Too movement because I think it brought to the forefront an issue that we've had in our society for years and years and years. Um, even, you know, when I was a college student, so many things that you would see that would then be masked with, oh, that's just, you know, certain behavior that happens, you know, in a very isolated kind of incident. Like these things don't, you know, really happen outside of, you know, college settings or outside of um, these kind of fraternity parties or things like that. Then even as a Title IX investigator, at, at Wofford, you, you see all of these different things coming to light. And then now you're realizing, oh no, this stuff continues. And even if someone acted like this, this stuff can continue and still happen in professional settings on a night out or during the daytime. And so I will say that I'm just thankful for it because it's brought to the forefront that these things are happening. And I think it's making folks be more conscious of some of these issues and be more thoughtful as they're maneuvering through life. Because I, I don't think that folks were aware that these things were happening or even I think it's expanded the definition of what sexual assault looks like or what it what it is, um, because I think some people really were functioning under the impression that you know sexual assault looked like you know someone jumping out of a bush and like raping someone or something like that. Whereas like no, there could be certain work environments that are perpetuated through certain behaviors through language. And now I think we've expanded that definition and people are a lot more conscious of it. I mean I think that that's so it's raised awareness. It raised awareness. You serve as a key member of the leadership team 
team here at Pendleton Place. Tell us about the mission of this nonprofit organization. Sure. So I'm the Connections Count Director, and the Connections Count program works with young adults aging out of foster care. And we're really excited now because we've been providing independent living services for young adults aging out of foster care, developing life plans with them, helping them when they're in crisis, and helping them accomplish certain goals within education, employment, child care, mental health. But now we are in the process of opening up a youth drop-in center that's going to expand the services that we're already providing and be able to provide independent living services for runaway homeless youth and then also have a space where runaway homeless youth can come and seek even basic needs such as laundry services, showers, a hot meal, mailboxes. All of these different barriers that sometimes are presented to young adults experiencing homelessness that we're hoping to kind of break down and get them to self-sufficiency and independence. How many young people are you seeing and what is the need in the community? Well, right now we have a caseload at about 12. Just for capacity purposes, we only have one independent living specialist working with our clients. And the need is that there are so many young adults that are aging out of foster care and don't really have that safety net. So, you know, sometimes we think about, you know, who are we going to call when we're in crisis or when we, we need some support around maybe uh, a, an employment type of question or a child care kind of need. Most of us have a family member or a supportive friend that we can call. But our young adults that we're working with don't have anyone to call when they're in that time of need. And so a stat that kind of jumps into my head right now is that one out of five young adults aging out of foster care will end up on the street and homeless. But in South Carolina, that is the, the number grows and it's actually one out of four young adults aging out of foster care are going to end up on the street. And so the need is huge. And it, it almost seems like we're like failing our kids and our youth that are growing up in the foster care system because, you know, once they age out, again, like who can they turn to? And so we want to make sure that they have a place that they can call home or that they feel like they have a home or a safe haven, people that care, that can connect them to more resources so that they can advocate for themselves. Kind of, again, the idea of becoming self-sufficient stems from the fact that you know what to do when a crisis occurs, right? And so a lot of what we want to do is make sure that they're aware of the resources in our communities. And you mentioned mentorship, and that's a part of the program. And why is that important to this effort? Absolutely. So we do have a mentoring component to our program. We want to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, we're expanding their network, right? So yes to community services, but also to other people. You know, one relationship, one healthy relationship can change the path of someone's life. And so we know, and research shows, that having that connection, a healthy relationship with someone, can change the, the path of your life. And so what we want to do with our mentoring program is connect our young adults with a caring mentor, a caring person to help them and uh, motivate them and coach them. Because I think some mentoring programs in the past have been done differently where it's super relationship focused and, and that's great and we want to have aspects of that, but we're also incorporating coaching into this. A lot of the coaching research or coaching um, models truly exists within higher ed or corporate organizations, but with us, we're trying to do kind of a hybrid of them both and make sure that our mentors are trained um, and are also coaches for our young adults and can coach them through some of these life decisions. You've talked about leadership and how important and central that is to your life. How do you define leadership? To me, the way I define leadership is an individual using their gifts to be able to be in relationship 
with others and help move an initiative or a community or an organization forward. I am big on ensuring that people have a voice. And so to me, and even my leadership style or leadership that you know I respect and I you know can kind of can get behind are those leaders that are in tune with themselves, are conscious about themselves, but are also thinking about the folks that they're leading, inclusive of others and those voices and incorporating those voices in whatever type of decision that, that they make. You've been described as a social change agent. Fair assessment? I would say so. I'd say so. I truly believe that I was put on this earth to make change happen. My lens is truly informed through social justice. I believe in, you know, like the rights of people, especially those communities that just don't have a voice or have a seat at the table. And so if I can, in, in some situations, help other folks, you know, have that voice or add that voice to the table, there's been, you know, meetings or committees that I've been on that I'm like, you know, I'm always that person. I'm just like, okay. Let's just take a minute to think about how this group is going to feel, or let's let's invite this group to the table because I think we're missing a specific group or representation. You've lived in California and Pennsylvania, now South Carolina. Why South Carolina, and what is your hope for South Carolina? I specifically moved to South Carolina because you know I I'd only learned about the South through textbooks. You know, being out in California, um, I say I discovered the South back in 2009 when I started visiting friends here, and when I visited and I. You know, kind of walked around different establishments, I just didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. And I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me in certain leadership positions. And so when I had the decision to, you know, kind of make that movie there, I was thinking DC or South Carolina, um, I realized that there was just a lot more change that I could bring to South Carolina to help move the state forward and, and actually feel the impact of my presence, right? And so I was hoping to be just that representation. So I, representation is big for me and, and making sure that people know that there's different stories to people that look like me. And sometimes, you know, you only get like that one narrative, that one kind of stereotype when you see, you know, a Hispanic woman, but I want folks to know that the possibilities, again, are endless for Latinas in general. And then if I can help continue to even with myself or with other young people that I can bring along to get them into certain positions of, of leadership to, again, expand that definition of what a Latina or Latinos can do. We're going to have a sequence here about education, so I'm going to switch gears here. Okay. Who was your favorite teacher growing up? My favorite teacher, oh gosh, and I have so many. I'm gonna have to choose Miss Thigpen, Tabitha Thigpen, who I mentioned earlier was my French teacher, but then became my leadership teacher. And I think, you know, the work that she was doing with all these, you know, kids in inner city Los Angeles and South Central LA, and to teach them different tenets of leadership as a class as early as freshman year of high school, I think was so impactful. And, and I'll tell you, a lot of my classmates for that leadership class went on to do incredible things. So I would say that she's my favorite teacher. And we've asked this before, but who inspired you and how? I would say the person that most inspires me is my mother. Both my parents are incredible, but my mom, all that she's been through and all that she has, she's had to overcome and still being able to raise five young women here in this country, I think she inspires me so much. She just always knew what she wanted and, and kind of kept fighting and fighting for it to make sure that she could get that for, for her and her children. What advice do you have for someone who might be interested in the job you have now? My advice would be that your heart has to be in it. You know, no one goes into social work 
thinking they're gonna become millionaires and they're just gonna be making the big bucks. So your heart truly has to be in the work that that, that we do. Um, you see so many different stories every day. I mean, you're hearing about a, a, a crisis that one of our clients had. And so if you're not truly passionate about this work and wanting to make that difference in someone's life, you're, you're just, you, you won't last in it. So your heart just really has to be in it. And one final question about immigration, because we're seeing so many issues. Having come from that world with your parents immigrating into this country, what is your sense now? How will we move forward as a nation? You know, I'll, so I'll be perfectly honest. It makes me scared and it makes me sad to think about where we currently are as a country, especially around immigration. A few years back, especially when I was in graduate school, there was tons of work that I was doing for immigrant rights and deferred action had just come out, um, so DACA for childhood arrivals. I thought we were getting to a place where we we're going to be able to help so many, you know, dreamers come out of the shadows, being able to, you know, be contributing, not even contributing because they were already contributing, but being able to truly be in the forefront and do things that they wanted to do. Um, and again, as a product of two immigrant parents, I know that we have the, the capacity, the capabilities to do so much if just given that opportunity. But where we find ourselves today, I just think that we need to start opening our hearts, our minds, um, and, and understanding why it is that folks are wanting to come to this country. Understanding that there's a reason why we are allowing families to be torn apart at the borders. And you know, I mean, I'm sure folks have seen, I mean, even little kids being put in cages. I mean, things like that are just like not, should should never happen, especially with the work that we're doing here at Pendleton Place, where we want to, you know, keep families safe and try to kind of keep kids from having to deal with so much abuse, neglect, and trauma. The fact that we're allowing this to happen is, to me, evidence enough that we've either made the decision that certain people are inferior or have forgotten the dignity and humanity. And, 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 and it's a scary place to be. And so I think a lot more conversations have to start happening. People need to be in relationship with people that look like me, that have immigrant backgrounds, that have that story, that are being directly affected by some of this. And you talk about why people are coming to America. Give me just a sense of that. There is so much going on in some of these Latin American countries. I can tell you personally, my mom fled poverty. She grew up so impoverished. They hardly ever had any money to, to eat. Um, my mom tells me stories about when she had to go down to like riverbanks and use some of the sand to brush her teeth because she didn't have you know money for toothbrushes. My dad, you know, if, if you're familiar with a lot of the history in Central America, there are tons of civil wars. The U.S. had their, their hand in some of the, the issues issues that happened in Central America too. So my dad, you know, grew up, um, I think he was six years old when his mom passed, 11 by the time his dad passed, in the middle of a civil war. Of course, he wanted to flee his country and come to the United States. And now, you know, here we are in 2018, there's still a lot of the same stuff happening in some of these countries where people are fleeing because they're wanting to protect their children. They, they can't access education, health care, meals for their family, and who wouldn't want to be able to provide that for their children? You know, now as a mom, I think, if I could not access health care, education for my daughter, meals for her, because I can't, you know, access any money, there are no 
jobs, yes, I too would run or you know drive or whatever, go wherever I needed to go to be able to provide that for my family. But how do you answer the question on the other side of people who say America can only take so many people and there are only so many jobs? Absolutely. So I think that there's there's that conversation that needs to happen, right? I think that we have to understand um, our role and what we our role in some of these countries as well. I think that we have to kind of hear that other side, and there's just a better way to do this. Um, there's there's either again conversations. I mean, I think. And I don't want to get all sorts of crazy political, right? But I think that there's just a better way to address it. Um, there, there, there definitely has to be something that we do. Um, I mean, I, I think we just need to understand, okay, why folks are coming and how can we address it? There's so many people already here in this country too. How can we just truly understand the, the needs of the folks coming here? And there's still something that we can do. There's always something more that we can do. So what you're saying is part of it is communication and understanding. And understanding, yes. Thank you very yes. much. <laughs> Jennifer Gutierrez Caldwell. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. Subscribe to this podcast on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, or wherever you find podcasts to hear the rest of stories from this season. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer. Tyora Moody is web manager. Special thanks to Bobby Kennedy, director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>